You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Up next is Mr. Bruce um, to present his paper. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark, and the organisers of this um, conference for inviting me here today to express my views and findings on the Bristol High Cross. Now, the Bristol High Cross is hidden in plain view. Hang on, uh, can I have something that I can control this with? Uh, like the reach of it? Try and bring it a bit closer to you. Otherwise, I'll, I'll, I'll move further. Yeah, no, it's uh, not going to extend much further. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I find it never works if it's by a third party. Um, right, OK. Um, so, hidden in plain view. Um, it would be more hidden in plain view if I had my script. Yep. Um, the Bristol High Cross. Well, my background is, is that um, I worked at um, University of West Swingham for... 25 years. Um, I began uh, my, uh, if you like, undergraduate academic career as a um, an historian and uh, a political economist. Um, I went on to do town planning. So, with that background, I inevitably ended up teaching tourism. That's how the teachers of tourism uh, developed in the 1980s. Um, as a teacher of tourism, I took students around Europe and I found myself visiting obscure parts of Europe, many of which had walled towns. So since 1989, I've been involved with um, two organisations, well, same organisation, the Walled Towns Friendship Circle, and that's now morphed into European Walled Towns. I make no apologies for being a European. Um, hidden in plain view. Now, if you want to find the Bristol High Cross, what you mustn't do is look anywhere near Bristol. You come down a country lane, and as you come a bit further, you find this strange thing among the, the uh, uh, <coughs> tractors and uh, 
um, people of the countryside. And there, in a classical landscape, you find a Gothic high cross. It doesn't necessarily fit in that landscape, but there it is, and it's very beautiful. Now, because hidden is a visual concept, I'm basically going to run through some uh, illustrations. I'm not going to refer directly to the paper which I've uh, uh, circulated in, which I guess is available on your websites and things, but you'll be able to pick up the, the, uh, the bits in between. So, <clears throat> here it is in a classical landscape. Where it started was in the very centre of Bristol. And you'll see here in a 1479 uh, <clears throat> illustration, it was there at the heart of Bristol. So you'll note that it isn't exactly as it was uh, at that time. It's known to have had statues, for instance, which I'll come back to. But it was pretty well like that, and it's not a bad illustration for 1479. The early map is one of the earliest um, town maps of um, uh, Britain. Now it's hidden in a manicured landscape in an 18th century, it's not actually Capability Brown, but uh, um, after Capability Brown, near a parish church, but otherwise in this landscape which within 20 years was beginning to get much fuller of trees. And it was very close to Dorset. Um, this is King Alfred's Folly Tower, uh, which you can see Dorset from. Those trees in the back are uh, Dorset. So where are we? Anyone know? Starhead, indeed. The Palladian mansion of the Hoare banking family. It is significant that um, it was a banking family because they had uh, the money to collect things together in their um, uh, palatial surroundings. Um, and that's where the Bristol High Cross is. Now, I say it's the Bristol High Cross. We'll come on as we go and see that it's a little bit like my grandfather's axe. Do you all know the story of my grandfather's axe? I replaced the blade, and that was still my grandfather's axe. I replaced the haft, and that was still my grandfather's axe, even though neither the blade nor the haft had ever been touched by my grandfather. And that's a very uh, uh, thing about a lot of the heritage which we look at, what is replica, what is uh, uh, um, genuine, what is authentic. Remember grandfather's axe still grandfather's axe. Now, <clears throat> in the Victorian Albert Museum, there are three statues of kings which actually come from that high cross of Bristol. Um, they are um, <coughs> uh, King John, I think they're King John, King um, Henry III and King um, 
Edward III. Edward III is the most important for Bristol, as I'll come back to. But <clears throat> there was a battle in the 1980s because um, <clears throat> the National Trust, which owns Storehead, said they couldn't possibly give the High Cross back to Bristol or do anything like that because it would all fall to bits if they took it down. Within a couple of years, they took it down, restored it, flogged off those uh, statues to the Victoria and Albert Museum, and then put it back up, up again and said, oh, no, no, we can't possibly give it back to Bristol. Mind you, it wasn't altogether certain that um, Bristol wanted it, as I'll come back to. But the replicas, so at Starhead, the original cross, is actually three out of the four of the uh, medieval kings are replicas. The others, as we saw, are in the V&A. Um, <clears throat> but the High Cross was important to Bristol because the Edward III um, charter, which it marks, um, came just 50 years after this uh, great insurrection of the city of Bristol, which you may not have heard of, but for four years, Bristol was in rebellion from the crown. Bartholomew of Badersmere was ruling the roost. This shows a, a uh, uh, this is the city here. This is the, the Norman castle in conflict. Interestingly for the Scots um, um, among us, uh, it means that Bristol was not fighting with Edward II at Bannockburn. 1314. You see, it was in rebellion at the time. Maybe this is why the English lost, <laughs> quite apart from the brilliance of the Scots generalship and uh, uh, general nationalism. I am a Bruce, after all. <laughs> um, but what was being celebrated with that high cross, and it's thought to date from 50 years after the Edward III um, um, charter of uh, 1373. So within a generation of that rebellion, and in fact the leaders of that, that rebellion became the MPs for Bristol. They didn't have their heads chopped off. Uh, it was in effect a successful rebellion, although they surrendered at the time. And within a gen couple of generations, it had become the city and county of Bristol, which uh, was uh, unique in Britain. That a city escaped from its counties of Gloucestershire and Somerset, and that's what the High Cross celebrates. And you see here the, um, the symbol of Bristol, which is the ship sailing out to the world from the walled city. And <clears throat> where it should be, and where in minute form, it still is. This is a little silvered plaque done in about, uh, well, 1977. It was for the Queen's Silver Jubilee on the Guildhall building in the centre of Bristol. Um, <clears throat> more apparent, and this is just beside that, are the Bristol nails. Uh, to pay on the nail is to pay in cash on the nail. And these are the nails which are the the, um, where the centre of the market of Bristol was and uh, 
to a considerable extent again is. Um, now, why did the High Cross get lost? Why wasn't it, why isn't it still there in the center of Bristol? I think this goes back to the 17th century when the High Cross was extended and four more monarchs were added. Now the early monarchs had symbolized Bristol independent under the crown, not subject to the counties around it. These four, who are um, Henry VI, Elizabeth, James I, and Charles I, is why it got politicized. 1630s, new statue of Charles I, that was going to be popular in the 1640s, wasn't it? When Bristol was um, uh, captured by assault uh, twice, um, suffered considerable destruction, but in the end did quite well at the Civil War, as I'll come on to. But these four um, monarchs are the only ones which are still in replica form, my grandfather's axe, in Berkeley Square in Bristol, but only the stub. I discovered only this week from a friend of mine who used to work for the council that in the 1940s, the councillors used to give away chunks of the, uh, uh, it was a 19th century replica of the cross, uh, to sort of all and sundry for, wouldn't you like a chunk of stone to remember your stay in Bristol? So I don't know if anyone wants to try and track down the rest, but it was only the top which was left by the time someone said, uh, why don't we give it to the Civic Society and stick it somewhere where no one will notice? And Berkeley Square is, is that place, and it's truncated. But <clears throat> the Civil War allowed Bristol to demolish its castle, demolish even the power of the crown in the centre of the city. And so uh, Bristol became very like a, um, <clears throat> an independent imperial free city in the continental uh, sense. It was not subject to any power except the crown and therefore could uh, <clears throat> have its own trade. It broke away after the Civil War from London monopolies. It used these powers to trade in slaves but that's another hidden history which we perhaps might come back to at a later date, but not uh, specifically today. But after the Civil War, the country split, remained split between the Royalists and the uh, Cromwellians. They became Tories and Whigs. Tories are still around, I think. Um, the Ruinous and superstitious relic was what the Whigs thought of this thing because they'd missed the point that the kings were there to symbolize independence from the counties, not to celebrate monarchy. But of course, with Charles I on the thing, that was quite understandable. They wanted to get rid of it. They claimed it was a traffic hazard. It's always a traffic hazard when you want to get rid of something. Uh, <clears throat> And so they shifted it off to the cathedral, where they said they couldn't parade eight abreast. So they shipped it off again, this time into the vaults of the cathedral, 
at this point, I think the story gets a little bit muddy, but, and gets very muddy in the next slide, the, um, <clears throat> the dean thought it owned the um, high cross. It was at this point in bits under the cathedral. So anyway, he flogged it to his banker friend, Hoare. I always suspect there was probably a gambling debt involved. And this is where a muddy tale. He was interested enough in it to send six carts, uh, sorry, three carts on a six-day trip from Stourhead to Bristol to drag these bits back through these uh, 18th century pre-toll road roads. So he clearly placed some value on it, but it was a sort of uh, Gothic romantic value. It had lost its value to Bristol as a symbol of its free inner town, its free city status. The free cities, um, these are a couple of German examples. In Germany and across much of Europe, the Altstadt, the old town, is a much treasured part of any city. They treat traffic differently there. And <clears throat> they frequently have a symbol. This is the Roland statue in the centre of uh, Bremen, which symbolises. Now, Bremen got much, much, much worse bombed than Bristol. But if you go to Bremen, you will find battered, but the Roland, the Roman, Roland statue and the centre of uh, Bremen still proudly independent. Bremen is still an independent lunt within uh, Germany. It's not subject to uh, any of the, the territorial lender. It's a free city. Now, <clears throat> in the British context, the walled towns tended to get lost. But um, even Oxford, if you know that, if you look carefully, the picture on the, um, uh, on the right is of the walls of Oxford. Not even the best bit of the walls. The best bit of the walls are in New College uh, gardens. But that's, again, another story. But... Um, <clears throat> Bristol and Oxford were walled cities whose form in the centre remained, but not the visible state. But even in Bristol, one great gate, and it's one of the best city gates in Britain, remained. It remained partly because it was used for ceremony. Elizabeth I came in through it. And here you see a, um, some sort of um, reenactment in the early 2000s. That's what it looks like. It also remained because it was incorporated within a church, and so it has this spa above the city gate, which makes it particularly magnificent. But uh, it's quite difficult to find the rest of the walls, to find the rest of the city, the actual old city. It was still reasonably clear in 1906, here we are, there is the council house, the centre, and that is the old city. 
a, um, a modern Google Maps shows that we've lost a quarter, a whole quarter. Now, yes, enemy action was involved, but no, it didn't have to be turned into a park and a couple of rather dull um, businesses. It, the sense that it was the centre of Bristol had been lost because the, uh, the High Cross had been hidden. And with it, that sense that Bristol was part of the free cities of Europe. Um, <clears throat> Brown Hogenberg is, if you like, the urban, uh, the urban historians, the urban geographers equivalent of the first folio of Shakespeare, approximately contemporary, three amazing volumes printed with 475 towns, magnificent maps, and this is Brightstow, Bristol, among that, part of its European heritage. That's the actual form the map takes. On the back, there is a potted history of Bristol. Now, it isn't accurate, but it's the potted history of Bristol as known in 1570, and therefore, picking up your point, a history is as much about when it's written as about what it's about. You know, if you look at all sorts of histories, always look at the date when the historian lived and see what it tells you about him and her and their surroundings. So, from city and county to city and Avon County in the 1970s, after the bombing, Bristol really, it lost its port, it lost its sense of dignity, which it's uh, beginning to recover. Even the ship, instead of sailing out to the world, started importing things. I don't know how, I've never been able to find out why they turned the ship round to be sailing in rather than sailing out. But coats of arms are perhaps best summed up by, by uh, Banksy, <coughs> the coat of arms, which is again in, in Bristol. So the old city got lost. And only in the last couple of years, about two, three years, has it begun to realize that there is a medieval city there in the center of Bristol. And you see in the leaflet they do, they have a little symbol, they, a little illustration of the, the uh, uh, high cross. Um, but the representation, which is actually a rather similar sort of representation to the Herfnagel, to the, the old ones of buildings in the plan, <coughs> takes account of the, the lack of a quarter by using it as a symbol. So we've lost a quarter of our old city and we've lost our sense of where the center of Bristol is. So could we put it back? Should we put it back? Now, one of the things which was also lost in the bombs, but in fact, it was only shaken, not stirred, but they took it down was this magnificent Dutch house, which is a timber-framed 
building, uh, which was there in the centre of Bristol. If you combine those two, you'd have a very different centre of Bristol and sense of the centre of Bristol than now. But <clears throat> should it remain? Should it be recovered? Should we uh, put old stones back or keep them? This I took 20 minutes ago. I haven't been to Dorchester for a long time, and I'd forgotten that you have a market cross. So 20 minutes ago, I took a photograph of it, and I thought I'd just uh, uh, <clears throat> show you how your symbolic market cross works in Dorchester. But I want to end with the uh, um, comments of uh, a close friend of mine who also provided me with much of the, the materials here, particularly this leaflet on the Bristol Hive Cross done in um, 1980, um, because he perhaps opens up the debate by, I can find it, by making this comment. Dear David, thanks so much for this. I wish I could be at the conference, but I'm afraid I'd take the contrary view partly coloured by my rigid opposition to the Elgin marbles going anywhere except the BM. I can't see that much was lost when Bristol lost the High Cross. I mean, a fairly ugly traffic cone with royal figures in profusion. <clears throat> what have we lost? And the fact that other towns have retained more medieval features is surely a reflection of that comparative stagnation of Bristol's vibrant prosperity and expansion. I can't see that bringing back the cross would do anything for the happiness of Bristolians today. <coughs> I mean, make them walk taller or feel happier or solve any of their problems. I like a great deal about Bristol now, but I'm ashamed that there's a 10-year difference in average mortality rates between richer and poorer areas. <coughs> that upsets me, and I wish we could do something about it. I don't know what heritage means. Perhaps we'll be able to uh, report back to Barry from today, <clears throat> um, but if it means treating old bits of stone and old objects with inflated respect, I can't see the point. And tourists, surely they have enough with Brunel docks and museums and medieval trail. Sorry about all this. Thanks for being so stimulating. Good luck, Barry uh, Williamson, who's uh, a published historian, a Bristol resident. P.S. I'm sure I could be converted maybe or not, if Barry had seen the visual explanation of the hidden heritage. Anyway, I look forward to today's discussions. Thank you. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www dot archaeologypodcastnetwork dot com